You are listening to Killer. This is case number 24, Nathaniel Bar Jonah. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. You know, we always felt that this was a safe community. Um, predators live other places. They don't live in Great Falls, Montana. February the 20th, 2002. The trial begins of Nathaniel Barjona. Nathan Barjona was the worst pedophile I ever met, actually. He is charged with sexually abusing three boys who regarded him as a father figure. The police believe that this is the least of his crimes. It went from something bad's happened to something horrific evil has happened. They suspect he has done an unspeakable act of brutality to a 10-year-old boy and are desperately searching for proof. They found a whole series of coded writings, and John Cameron um, actually screamed, my God, he ate him. Nathaniel Barjona was born on February 15, 1957, in Worcester, Massachusetts. His birth name was David P. Brown, which he later changed to Nathaniel Benjamin Levi Barjona in 1991. Jonah's last known occupation was a short-order cook. In 1974, he pleaded guilty to impersonating a policeman and assaulting an 8-year-old boy, for which he received one year of probation. In 1977, Brown was convicted of the kidnapping and attempted murder of two boys and was sentenced to 18 to 20 years in prison. He was strangling the two boys while one managed to escape and find help. While incarcerated, Brown shared some of his fantasies of murder, dissection, and cannibalism with his psychiatrist who made the decision in 1979 to commit Brown to the Bridgewater State Hospital for sexual predators. Brown remained at the hospital until 1991 when Superior Court Judge Walter E. Steele decided that the state had failed to prove he was dangerous. Brown, who had changed his name to Nathaniel Benjamin Levi Barjona, left the institution with a promise from his family to the court that they would be moving to Montana. I've seen God take a hopeless situation like when all avenues were closed, it seemed, and I'd never ever be released, Barjona wrote in the rambling he sent to the Great Falls Tribune. Yet God told me I would, and I believed him, even though the evidence of my release was not there. Then totally out of left field, I got two, yes, two Christian psychiatrists who believed in me. That was a miracle in itself to find two Christians in that profession in Massachusetts. The state had a lot of evidence on their side, yet the judge sided with me. Barjona attacked another boy three weeks after his release and was arrested on assault charges but was freed without bail. A deal was made, however, that required that Barjona leave Massachusetts and join his family in Montana along with a two-year probation. Barjona kept his word and moved to Montana. Once in Montana, Barjona met with his probation officer and disclosed some of his past criminal record. A request was made to the Massachusetts Probation Office to send more records regarding Barjona's history and psychiatric past, but no additional records were sent. Barjona managed to stay away from police until 1999 when he was arrested near an elementary school in Great Falls, Montana, dressed as a policeman and carrying a stun gun and pepper spray. Authorities searched his home and found thousands of pictures of boys and a list with boys' names from Massachusetts and Great Falls. Also found were encrypted writings decoded by the FBI that included statements such as Little Boy Stew, Little Boy Pot Pies, and Lunches Served on the Patio with Roasted Child. This guy has some disgusting fetishes with uh, children, 
and with impersonating law enforcement. And this history is long. I mean, we're talking his first conviction was in, what, 1974? And then all the way up through 1999, he still hasn't changed his behaviors, and he keeps getting out. Yeah, and the interesting thing here, especially from the the Montana perspective, is the additional records that were requested were not sent. So you have a sexual predator that's admitted to his psychiatrist that when he was behind bars that he had these fetishes, and then he's writing these encrypted encrypted statements at the FBI, FBI decrypt, you know, with little pop, little boy pot pies and lunches served on the patio with roasted child. I mean, seriously, dude is crazy. And and again, yet another case where we're talking about someone who has a fetish for cannibalism. You know, I know some of the other cases that we've talked about where this has been prevalent with Pinkton and Matheny. Pinkton for sure, you know, I think did what he said he did and, you know, chopped up some of his victims and fed it to some people that were unknowing of what happened. But then Matheny was more along the lines of really talking a lot of shit, I think. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this is, it's really serious. I mean, his history is forever and somehow all the way up through 1999, like he's still getting released and let out. Like, how do you have a 20 to 30 year sentence and then somehow get yourself out of it? (laughs) I just don't understand that. Well, I think of what some of the information that I found for this case, it didn't really get into great detail about how he got released or what information was processed during his release, but it sounded like he had a way of sweet talking the uh the, the clinical doctors that were at the prison or whatever to make the make the judge seem that he wasn't a threat. Yeah, and the timing of all of this is like, you know, it seems like that there was something going on in the water in like the seventies and eighties with these killers where, you know, they would uh they'd be committing like massive amounts of crime yet getting out and escaping and doing all these things like what the heck was going on? I mean, nobody was keeping these people under lockdown and it's like the most dangerous of the dangerous. And this guy took it to the next level, dressing up as a cop and hanging around in school locations, elementary schools in the Great Falls, Montana area after 99. And you would think that like impersonating the police officer and then crimes against children would get you locked up and you wouldn't ever have a reason to be out. No excuses ever. No, I totally agree. But it it seems like a pattern with this guy. He's, he's doing the same things in Montana he was doing back in Massachusetts. So we'll, we'll move on at this point and talk about one of his victims, which was Zachary Ramsey. Zachary Ramsey, missing since February 9th, 1996, and born on December 18th, 1985, is a biracial, African-American, Caucasian male with brown hair, brown eyes. Ramsey has scars between his eyebrows and one on his arms. He had blotchy skin at the time of his 1996 disappearance. He has facial dimples. Ramsey wears eyeglasses, but he was not carrying them at the time he he had disappeared. His nickname is Zach. His clothing at the time of his disappearance is described as a blue denim jacket with green sleeves, a blue football jersey with his last name Ramsey imprinted on the back in gold letters, stonewashed jeans, and black high-top tennis shoes. Ramsey departed from the apartment he shared with his mother in the 400 block of North 4th Street in Great Falls, Montana at approximately 7.30 a.m. on February 6, 1996. He was walking to Witter School at the time. Witnesses saw him walk down the alley near the 400 block of North 5th Street shortly thereafter. He never arrived at school. Ramsey ran away once, a month prior to his disappearance. 
but he called his mother to come get him within an hour. He lived with his mother and two siblings at the time of his disappearance. His father is in the Air Force and was stationed in Colorado at the time. A neighbor reported that Nathaniel Barjona was in the area of the alley around the time that Ramsey was. Another witness told authorities that he saw Ramsey crossing North 6th Street at approximately 7.45 a.m. The witness stated that Ramsey appeared to be crying and was being followed by a man who was apparently upset. Investigators believe that the man was Barjona and that he abducted Ramsey using a stun gun to subdue the child shortly thereafter. School officials contacted Ramsey's mother when he failed to report to class during the day. His mother filed a missing persons report later that afternoon. Ramsey has never been heard from again. Barjona was charged with Ramsey's abduction and murder in 2000. Authorities suspected Barjona, whose given name was David P. Brown, preyed on young children, mainly boys. Barjona also confessed to cannibalistic activities. He bragged that he hunted Ramsey, among other grisly claims. He had a lengthy criminal record and served a prison sentence for the abduction and attempted murder of two Massachusetts boys in 1977. Authorities stated Ramsey's body would not be recovered due to Barjona's suspected cannibalism. Prosecutors sought the death penalty for his alleged crimes. Barjona was convicted of two unrelated counts of child molestation in Montana in February of 2002. He vowed to appeal the decisions and maintained his innocence in all charges against him. So again, this monster's somehow out of prison and in Montana, and he's out here causing grief and havoc amongst the community as far as stalking and apparently abducting and murdering children. So the most disgusting line in this whole thing is, authorities stated Ramsey's body would not be recovered due to Barjona's suspected cannibalism. Take that in for a moment. Yeah, I, I know. I, I thought the same thing when I read that that sentence. But but the thing that, that drives me crazy about what we just talked about there was he bragged that he hunted Ramsey, among other grisly claims, and he also confessed to cannibalistic activities, but yet he vowed to appeal decisions and maintain his innocence in all charges against him. So why is he why is he confessing to some of the stuff that he's doing, but yet vows his innocence? Does he think in his mind that what he's doing is okay? I don't think so. I, I think what it really comes down to is that he's one of those semi-functional individuals in the sense that like he knows what he's doing is wrong on like a very small level in his mind. He knows, but he doesn't feel it's wrong and he can't control it. So his pleading not guilty is more or less most likely the advice of legal counsel, but also it's his way of trying to get out of this again. Yeah, I I guess I can see that side of it. It's just, I I don't know from the mind of somebody that can do something like this, how they compartmentalize it and how they can, I I just think in some cases, and I'm sure I'm not a psychiatric expert or whatever, but I'm sure at some level they know it's wrong. Like you said, they can't control themselves, but yet they still they still claim their innocence even because they don't think that the severity is that bad. Yeah, and so to them, this is all fine and dandy, but you know, they also kinda know, well, societally this is wrong and I keep getting thrown in prison for it. So what else can I do other than plead not guilty and try and get out of it again, even though I'm over here bragging about it. Yeah. And he spent, he spent a fair amount of time in prison. So, I mean, that, that's how we reform people who do the wrong thing, right? They spend time in prison. Supposedly they're reformed. They get out. They're supposed to be better, but obviously this guy isn't. So 
you would think after you spent a substantial amount of time in prison that you know what you did was wrong and you're not going to do it again. I don't know. I get everybody processes things differently, I guess. I think it depends on the level of the crimes and the nature of how deep they run in your in your mind, you know, and your state of mind. I think that we see prison is not a reform system for the majority of criminals in there. It's just not. The way that we do prison in this country is to oppress those who committed wrongdoings. And unfortunately in this country, it happens to be a lot of minorities and the, and the deck is stacked against them. And it's not the way that it should be at all. But that's just what we do right now. And I understand how it happened and why it is the way that it is, but I would never argue that we do any kind of reform in prison. That's an interesting point. I'll, I'll be very curious to see what kind of feedback we get on that that particular discussion. I, I see what you're saying, but I also see that there's some people like this guy who are so bad that have done such atrocious things that they need to be locked away and not have any contact with the outside world, in my opinion, ever. I mean, the guy got out after a certain amount of time and a judge of all people felt that he was safe to reenter society, which, you know, clearly isn't the case. We're going to talk about some more possible connections here in a minute, but just from the Zachary Ramsey standpoint, he obviously was not ready to, to reenter society. Yeah. And, you know, and what I'm saying is it's not that you can't be reformed in prison because you can, I think you have to want to be, and you have to take that on your own shoulders and be like basically driven to do it. You know, kind of like the way that society functions as a whole, it's capitalistic. And in theory, anyone can get ahead if they want to, they just have to want it enough and be motivated to do it. Right. And you and I talk about this a lot, just in general in life. If you want to get ahead and you want to do something, do it. 90% of people get in their own way. And so if you can be in that 10% of people that just do what they're going to do and try things, you've already made it far greater than most of society ever will. How many times do you listen to somebody you know tell you about how they're going to do X, Y, or Z? They're starting this business or they have this next great idea. Every day they tell you the story, but shit doesn't change. That that's a great comparison, and I totally agree. Yeah, the the reform only works in prison if the person wants to be reformed. I guess is my take on it. Yeah, similar to drug addiction, right? Like a lot of addicts who want to be clean get clean, and I mean, there's a little bit of a gray area in that because you know that disease in and of itself is very hard to just get rid of because of the fact that you're hooked on some substance that makes you feel a certain way and then it changes your body chemistry and like almost requires you to need it but some of that has parallels here as well if you want to get well you'll get well if you don't you won't and a lot of people get stuck into a rut and they stay in that lane and they don't want to get out of it as much as they might say they want to they know it's hard. And as soon as you put resistance in front of them, they stop. And I think that goes along with like what we're talking about. Reform in prison just doesn't happen. It's just not a thing unless that person is really driven to be reformed. Those people will be reformed, but there's not many of them. No, I think the vast majority of people just take a defeated stance. Like, I'm here, I got in trouble, or, or there, I'm sure there's a, there's a lot of people that are innocent that are wrongfully accused or wrongfully convicted that are there. But yet, like I said, they just, 
they take that defeatist stance and they just they do their time essentially. They don't look to get reformed. They're just doing their time. Yep, they're just another cog in the system, and so they just continue on that way. All right, let's talk about some other possible connections to Barjona. Barjona is a, also a possible suspect in the 1973 disappearance of Janice Pocket from Connecticut. Barjona was a teenager at the time Pocket disappeared, but apparently had a criminal background at an early age. He also resided near Pocket's last known location at the time she disappeared. Authorities also investigated the possibility that Barjona was connected to the 1997 Wyoming disappearance of Amanda Gallion. Gallion is classified as a runaway, but her social security number has not been used since her disappearance. A handwritten list of names entitled Lake Webster was discovered in Barjona's possession in December 2001. DNA testing conducted in 2001 on a bone located in Barjona's Montana garage proved that it was not part of Ramsey's, Pockets, or Gallion's remains. All charges related to Ramsey's case were dismissed against Barjona in October of 2002 as the result of a lack of evidence. Ramsey's mother stated that she believed her son was alive. She said that she viewed a videotape of her son frolicking in a playground in 2000. Authorities said that they verified the tape was filmed in Illy, where the child's father was stationed with the United States military at the time. His dental records and fingerprints did not match Ramsey's. His mother insists that her psychic and others believe her son is alive, and she hopes his case will be reopened by law enforcement. Investigators closed Ramsey's file after allegedly connecting Barjona to his disappearance. No, that's super interesting right there. What do you make of that? It is super interesting that the mother, you know, even despite seeing a videotape that she thinks is her son, I don't know if she thought that her her husband had abducted him and taken, taken him to where he was located at the time of his, you know, his military service. So what happened to the husband? Where was he when all this was going on? Well, apparently he was still stationed, you know, abroad at the time. At least that's the way I'm reading this. But I'm not sure why she would suspect that the father had the child. I mean, it's kind of, that's kind of weird. It's extremely strange. That just comes kind of out of nowhere. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, they, they went as far as to check dental records and fingerprints of the child, and it did not match her son's. So maybe they were investigating the father to make sure that he wasn't a suspect in his disappearance. Kind of what it sounds like to me. Yeah, well, I saw in another article that the Great Falls Police, they arranged to have that boy's dental records compared with those of Zachary, and they don't match. So basically, at that point, they're still, they still have no idea what happened to Zachary. He's still, you know, from a law enforcement standpoint, he's still you know, a missing child. But they closed the case after, that's kind of weird too, because it says investigators closed Ramsey's file after allegedly connecting Barjona to his disappearance. I think that was talking about like back when everything was hot. And when they first suspected it, because they convicted him, and then I think it got overturned due to lack of evidence. And so I'm just reading another uh, report, and in that report they state that they made contact with the child in that video, they compared dental records, they don't match, and then that child had moved to California, and they have followed up with him and his family several times and compared fingerprints, and they are confident that he is not the same child. So in this case, it seems like the mother just found someone who has a very striking resemblance. There's a lot of strangeness around that whole thing. And how did she come across the video? Was it sent to her from her husband abroad? Or did law enforcement uncover the video and have her look at it to make sure that it was him? And she, in her mind, 
hoping that he's still alive and still well, said, yeah, that looks like him. Exactly. There's so many questions to that story that I didn't find an answer to in, in the article I read, but it, I guess the the TLDR of it, if you're a Reddit user, is, which stands for too long, didn't read, is they found him, tested him, not a match. So let's talk about if Barjona actually confessed. Barjona told the mother of 10-year-old Zachary Ramsey that he had hunted, killed, and butchered and wrapped the meat of her child. Prosecutors said that he also served and ate burgers containing human flesh at a barbecue for his mother and a friend. A police search of Barjona's home revealed hundreds of cryptic notes handwritten by him with headings such as lunches served on the patio with roasted child and barbecue be some young guy. Police also found a meat grinder with hair inside along with numerous displayed newspaper clippings on Zachary's disappearance. There was a large piece of plywood that was smeared with a wide, indelible stain despite being repeatedly scrubbed with bleach. Lab tests indicated the board was struck several times with a sharp instrument. There was also the names of thousands of children. There are a list of children that you can just turn page after page after page after page, said Brant Light, the lead prosecutor on the case. Also found were 3,500 pictures of youngsters. He had notebooks where there's pictures of children cut out of annual school books and newspapers with their names underneath, just like collecting baseball cards, Mr. Light said. In what seems to be the first cannibal murder case of 2001, and police in Great Falls, Montana arrested child molester and sexual sadist Nathaniel Barjona for the murder of 10-year-old Zachary Ramsey, who disappeared in 1996. Montana authorities have never recovered Ramsey's body, and now believe Barjona ate the remains and also fed them to unwitting friends. They also suspect Barjona could be a serial killer after finding an unidentified child's bones in his garage and have enlisted the FBI's help in finding victims in other areas, including Massachusetts. Why do cannibals always insist on feeding people to other people? I, I thought the same thing. I, I don't know if it's a sick joke for them. I mean, if, if you're a cannibal, I don't think that um, Jeffrey Dahmer fed people to other people, did he? And he was probably the most notorious cannibal of all time. Yeah, I don't think so. But a lot of the other stories we come across, it's like this weird fetish they have or something where they just decide they're going to feed their victims to other people unknowingly. Oh my God. I think I, I, think I would turn vegan from that reason alone if, if I ever came across someone like that. Yeah, same here. Uh, that's totally disgusting. I, I don't know. I hate to say this too, but the food processing business is such a huge huge business where things are happening so rapidly. You have to believe at some point that you've uh, eaten a... <laughs> I'm not making a joke here. I'm trying not to laugh about it, but I have to believe at some point everyone's eaten a fingertip or something that's got caught in a grinder that didn't get dug out of the batch. Yeah. I wouldn't be shocked by that at all. But uh, it's one of those things. Out of sight, out of mind. Right. You don't dwell on it, but you know that it's probably happened and there's nothing you could do about it. Police believe it could be just the tip of the macabre iceberg of hideous crimes involving children, which could eventually rival serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer's crimes. In a case which has horrified residents of Montana's quiet farming community, investigators believe Nathaniel Barjona killed Zachary Ramsey as he walked home from school, then minced his body and cooked him in a range of dishes ranging from spaghetti sauce to stew. Neighbors of Barjona recalled him bringing them spaghetti, stew meat, chili, and pot pie, all containing a strange-tasting meat. Many blame the young boy's death on a judge in Massachusetts who ordered Barjona to move to his mother's home in Montana as a condition of his release from a mental hospital where he spent 12 years for the attempted murder of two teenage boys. 
When he arrived in Montana, the authorities say they were given no warning that he was coming their way. Once in the state, his sexual obsession with boys and cannibalism reasserted itself. Police said they found the names of four former Webster boys on a handwritten list seized from accused murderer and pedophile Nathaniel Barjona's Montana home. Police say that 27 of the 54 names on the list may be those of Massachusetts children whom Barjona knew when he grew up in the town of Webster, as David P. Brown, in the 1960s and 70s. Included on the list are names of three boys whom Barjona was convicted of abducting in 1975 and 1977. Webster police officer John Bolduck said he recognized several of the other names on the list despite misspellings. Bolduck's apartment received the list from police in Great Falls, Montana, where Barjona is jailed on murder charges. Evidence also shows Barjona traveled to Arkansas, Colorado, Florida, Massachusetts, Michigan, and Washington. The FBI is working with authorities in those states and others to review missing children reports. Police later recovered scores of pictures from Barjona's house of children in various stages of undress and of his own genitalia. They also took away bloody clothing, lists of names of prior victims and suspected victims, and coded notes with bizarre phrases hinting at his alleged cannibalism. As mentioned earlier, the charges involving Ramsey were dropped after the boy's mother said that she did not believe Barjona killed her son. For other charges, Barjona was sentenced to 130 years in prison for sexually assaulting one boy and torturing another by suspending him from a kitchen ceiling. In December 2004, the Montana Supreme Court turned down Barjona's appeals and upheld conviction and the 130-year prison sentence. So the last part of our conversation today and end of this case was actually of Barjona's death in prison. April 29, 2008, convicted sex offender Nathaniel Barjona was found dead on Sunday at the Montana State Prison in Deer Lodge. He was found unresponsive in his cell just after 6 a.m. and was taken to the Powell County Memorial Hospital where he was pronounced dead shortly after 7 a.m. An autopsy has found that Nathaniel Barjona died of poor health and complications related to his medical conditions. The convicted sex offender and accused cannibal was overweight and had also recently had a leg amputated due to complications from diabetes. Barjona's cell had been cordoned off and law enforcement officials are hoping to see what cryptic writings he might have left behind. We've been told the FBI and possibly the Great Falls Police Department go through his stuff and see any kind of, not only to Zachary Ramsey, but any other crimes he might have been involved in said Cascade County Attorney Brant Light. Well, that's a wrap on this week's case, and we can talk through some final thoughts on it here. The one thing that I find extremely interesting is there is a tie-in for this week's case to next week's case, and I just want you to call me on it next week because it's a little interesting to me. Anyway, the whole story here really, I mean, this guy starts at, 1974 where we know but potentially sometime in the 1960s if some of those cases where they suspect him but can't prove it you know where those popped up and then all the way through to 2008 when he finally dies that guy had a really long run i mean he really made it up till what 2000 1999 before he got caught officially or finally the last time yeah basically he he had over 20 years of time to to do his thing essentially yeah, and I mean, clearly he's just a deranged individual and just absolutely disgusting. And in my mind, the worst part of all of this is that he was let out several different times when he should not have been let out. And I hope that that was more of the innocence of the times where people didn't think that these crimes were going on because you hear about that a lot where 
crimes against children and pedophilia and those kinds of things weren't taken as seriously back then because people didn't really believe them to be a major problem. And now they are viewed that way. And I don't think that if these crimes happened today that the same result would have happened. And I think that's all you can ask for at this point. I, I think for me, the most the most frightening thing is not knowing how many actual victims there were because they they released him on lack of evidence for Zachary Ramsey's disappearance, right? Because they suspected that he ate the kid. How many kids did he eat? I mean, he's connected to five or six different states and disappearances. They they were looking in to see if he was tied to any of the disappearances in those other states, but it, as horrible as it sounds, it, it, is there a lack of evidence in all those other disappearances that could be directly related to this guy? Who knows? I mean, I'm sure they've closed, closed the case on some of that stuff. Yeah, and it comes down to just a lack of care for life at the end of the day. If someone murdered my son and then wouldn't admit to it later, oh my gosh, I mean, that would just eat at me forever. Imagine the families who this guy tormented by just not not admitting to it, even at the end. Like, I would just want to know at the very end, like, whatever, right before you die, just admit it. Let me know. I, I would just need to know so I could stop searching. Yeah, for sure. And one one piece of information that I didn't come across, and I don't know if it even exists, but they, they say they found 3,500 pictures of young children in different forms of dress and you know, whatnot, some lewd pictures of himself as well. But you think that would be pretty compelling evidence of, of all those photos that that would have been like your first piece of evidence to tie them to missing children in other states. I mean, maybe they tried and couldn't, I don't know, but I didn't see that information initially. Yeah. Think about that. 3,500 photos of children. And they have to be Polaroids, right? I mean, you're not going to take a roll of film to, <laughs> you're not going to take a roll of film to the to a store and have it developed, especially when you're taking pictures of your own junk. So this dude wasn't very bright, so who knows? I would imagine not. I mean, at this time, he was probably developing his own photos. That could be too. I mean, that was a popular thing back in the day, especially for hobbyists and things to develop their own film. So it, who knows? Maybe we're delving too deep, but I mean, it's, it's just crazy to think about how many how many missing children could be tied to this guy possibly. And they're not, and those parents are never going to know. Back to your point, it's, it's going to eat at some people for the rest of their lives. All right, that's a wrap on this week's episode. Thank you for listening. Please don't forget to subscribe and tell a friend or hit us up on our social media channels that you heard at the top of the show. And don't forget to get your Killer Podcast official show shirt. We will catch you guys next time. And I really mean it this time. Stay safe. So let's talk about this coronavirus thing that's going on here in the United States, really globally, but it finally really shit hit the fan this week. So we live in Ohio, and I would like to say that our governor has responded to this in a way that I would expect that the national leadership of our country would respond. They took it very seriously, shut public events down fast, and basically recommended people just stay home for a couple weeks here. Let's slow this thing down so the healthcare 
in this country can take a breather and, and get ready, get prepared. How are you doing over there? From my side, we're doing okay. I mean, there's there's a lot of worry in our house because my my wife is a nurse. You know, there's a little bit of fear there of the unknown. When's it going to happen? How soon? How many? Things like that. Yeah, and I'll be totally honest. I don't feel any effects from this right now, and it's because I work from home for a living. I've basically set up my home to be like the only place I ever go anyway. The only exception to that would be if like for some reason we can no longer get groceries like we usually do. But aside from that, business as usual on my front. Now, I feel extremely terrible right now for those of you who work in the food service industry, the airline industry, travel industry, you know, things like that where your jobs have effectively just disappeared for an unknown period of time. And that really freaking sucks. And I wish that the national leadership of this country would have immediately put into effect some kind of package to relieve those of you who are worried. I know they're working on it right now. Probably by the time this comes out, something will be worked out. Stay strong. Things will come out for you. It won't be perfect. It won't be the way that things were, you know, prior to. However, Hopefully you can look at this as an opportunity. Maybe start pursuing the thing that you always wanted to do, but you were trapped in the job that you hated. Yeah, I echo that 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 comment. It's a terrible state of affairs for sure for those people that can't work from home. I know that everybody's like, oh, work from home, quarantine yourself, but not everybody has that opportunity. And actually my wife and I and the kids, we we took the opportunity Sunday evening or whatever the day it was when the band for restaurants and things like that eating in took place and we went there and literally there were two servers there that were crying because they knew that that was their last day of work. The restaurant could not afford to keep them there because you know they were going to do some delivery and some takeout but it doesn't take as many people to do that. You don't have people waiting on customers at tables and it's a big hit. And the crazy thing is some of the officials say, "Oh, file unemployment, you know, but we know what a shit show that is." It, Servers and people, they, they fall under this thing where they're allowed to be paid basically a shit wage of, what is it, 3 or $4 an hour as a, as a waitress or a server, and they rely on the tips for the supplemental income, and that's gone. Yeah, and, and that's the big thing, right? And what I saw recently was that the government is, this will probably change by the time this episode publishes, but I'll say it anyway. So what they're talking about right now as of this recording, which is... March 18th, the government is looking at giving everyone, every adult in this country, a check of $1,000 to help just get you through. I think we'll probably follow suit with other countries like Italy where we pause mortgages and rent and utilities. Everything will be paused. And that's the way to look at it. This isn't a long term thing in the sense that, you know, for the next year, you're going to be stuck in your home. But what it is, it's that you're putting a pause on things for up to three weeks right now. I mean, that could change, but I don't see it going much more than three weeks. A lot of industries are going to be affected for a long time, like the travel industry, concerts, sports, those kinds of things. But we need to remember, you know, this is as stupid as it sounds. It is for the greater good of our country. I'll speak from personal experience here. My mom had a kidney transplant, and she's on immunosuppressant drugs. I would not want her to get affected by coronavirus. She would die, or potentially die. 
my wife is pregnant right now. I don't want her to get coronavirus. So we can't trust people to shelter in place because they think they're so cool and they think they're tougher than everyone else. And you're not in the peak group that would die from this, which right now is known to be the elderly group, but you could spread it to somebody who could die from it. And this show deals with killers all the time. You you would be killing somebody. And I wrestle with that because I understand, you know, this is a huge deal. But at the same time, everything happens for a reason, right? And in a time of extreme partisanship and extreme fighting, we need to come together and and work this out. Yeah. And I'm really hoping that it's only, you know, three to four weeks. But the last press conference that I watched, there there is a lot of medical experts, I'm sure, that are chirping in the president's ear and, and telling him how long this could potentially last. And he, he even admitted, he says, I ask that question every day to these people. How long is this thing going to how long is this thing going to last? And I believe his comment kind of as a side comment, I don't know if he was, he wasn't making, well, obviously everything he says is an official statement, but he did say that this could last into July and August. And there are states or at least one state that I know of already that has canceled the rest of the school year. I believe it's Kansas has already canceled the rest of their, the school year. Just, you know what, you're on break through summer. We'll try again in August, September. And I have a feeling that's going to come down the pike for everybody. It seems like, like you said, uh, Governor DeWine in Ohio has been kind of leading the forefront of how to handle this situation in the eyes of a lot of our leadership across the country. But we haven't got to that extreme yet. But I, I think it's, it's inevitable. I'll say this on the record. I typically don't vote Republican. I'm not opposed to it. I'm more somebody in the middle. And I did not vote for Mike DeWine. I'm proud he's my governor right now. He's handling this like a true adult, taking inputs from true medical professionals and leading the way. And I think the thing is, what people don't realize, health officials are chirping in in leadership's ears and letting them know what's going on. And particularly in Ohio, we have one of the best health systems in the country, the Cleveland Clinic. And if those people are telling you to lock it down, to pause this, to stop it, to help minimize the impact, you listen. And he is. And I know that the rest of the country is disrupted by this and they're annoyed. People have lost jobs. People are agitated. They can't go do things. But be an adult. Understand the situation. This is a tremendous burden on society in many areas. So whether or not you choose to let people get infected with it or you choose not to, either side has ramifications. And I would rather be on the side where people stay healthy and not the side where people are getting so sick, like in Italy, they're just making decisions to let people die over there right now. Do you want your loved one to be that person? You don't know for a fact that you're not going to get hit and be one of those people who aren't supposed to get super sick, but you do for some reason. You wouldn't want it to be you or your family. If you do want it to be you or your family, you might be featured on our show soon. Totally agree. From a timeline perspective, we're just coming off of flu season. And and I had the flu really bad about a month ago, and it took the better part of two to three weeks to like feel normal again. And coming off of a flu season like that, I'm not a medical expert. I've said it a million times, but you have to imagine that there's a lot of people out there that, you know, on a normal basis are really healthy from a standpoint of the cold and flu and things like that that are seasonal. But you have to imagine also that their immune systems are a little bit compromised. So 
it, it, it's even more dangerous if they can track this. I have to believe that's the case. Yeah, I'd, I'd be a little bit better feeling about this had we had a national stimulus package in place prior to shutting people down. It was just kind of unneeded panic right off the rip just because nobody knew, you know, nobody knows what's next. And then you're stuck inside to only think about what's next. So, you know, I, if, if you're one of those people, I really do feel for you. I'm, I'm really sorry that you're going through this right now because I know it's going to be extremely tough. And like I said, hopefully you have some other outlet that you've been really wanting to pursue. And now you maybe can, you know, maybe you wanted to start a podcast. Maybe you wanted to start writing. Maybe you wanted to start doing more art. Whatever you wanted to do, maybe now's the time to start doing it. That's the only way you can really look at this kind of thing is to think about how can you turn this shitty situation into something that you can leverage going forward. Nope, I, I totally agree. Uh, hopefully everybody can can remain calm as possible and stay healthy and find those creative outlets like you mentioned. You know, it, it's a day-by-day thing. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. There could be new announcements today. It's just everybody's in this together and we got to, you know, hopefully try to abide by what's being imposed upon us, you know, to, to keep everyone safe. And, you know, I don't know what else to say about it. The, the only, it seems like the only industries right now that are still working are the grocery industry. And I'm surprised that some of the manufacturing industries haven't shut down yet because there's some very large companies out there that have lots of employees under one roof. And I haven't heard a whole lot about them yet, but I, I, I think there's that fine line of the economy for lack of better terms, has really tanked here lately. You know, rightfully so. Everything that's going on, it's going to happen. There's n- no way to avoid it. There, there are some things that they just can't shut down because they can't let it completely crumble either. Well, and the point is to mitigate the spread, and you're not going to eliminate everybody getting together. But if you can drastically reduce that number to say like seven percent of what usually happens, you're probably in a way better situation than you would be if you let the rest of everyone together like we did. Can you imagine going to basketball, football, baseball games, people getting sick, spreading it to each other. I mean, people are disgusting. How many times have we talked about it on the show? People not washing their hands and doing that stuff. And, you know, it's just, I was out in public and that lady like took her feet out of her shoe during a movie and was like massaging her foot next to my wife while we're watching the Halloween movie or whatever. I mean, people are just gross. You can't trust people to not be disgusting. And that's kind of the sad thing about all of this. No, you're absolutely right. With saying that, it's amazing that we haven't had something like this happen earlier. In general, a lot of people are really gross. I mean, not to pinpoint one person or another. It's just some of your habits are terrible. And I'm I'm not perfect either. I don't wash my hands as much as I should. I mean, I definitely do after you go to the restroom. I mean, that's just disgusting. But everyone has bad habits and bad habits are hard to break. They say, wash your hands, don't touch your face. It is impossible to not touch your face regardless of how many times you wash your hands. I don't care. It's allergy season. I'm itchy. I have to scratch. (laughs) Yeah, right. No kidding. Well, if you'd shave your damn face, you wouldn't have that problem. Well, I mean, growing the beard is kind of a rite of passage when you work from home, right? (laughs) No kidding. Well, one final update on a lighter note is, uh, so that vegan diet I was on, that uh, that ended. Uh, I broke it by eating some bacon. So, I mean, what was the end result? Did you have anything to... I know you were only going to do it for a week just to kind of see how you felt after the week, but how did you feel at the end of the week? Well, I was really sick. I continued to stay really sick, and I didn't get much better until I switched back to eating meat. Coincidence? I don't know. 
it could be. I'm not saying it is or not, you know, kind of just making light of that, but I felt pretty terrible for a good part of that week, mostly just from just being sick and I didn't feel any better eating vegan and it wasn't bad either though. So I'll, like I said, I'll probably incorporate a lot of those vegan recipes and meals into just eating that every once in a while, you know, throughout without having meat at every single meal all the time. And, uh, yeah, it was okay. Uh, it's doable. So at least I know that if, uh, shit hits the fan and I can't get any meat, I can handle it. Were, were you sick before you started that kind of test? Yeah, I was a little bit, but it seemed to get worse. I don't know. It's hard. I've been sick for so, so long now. It started out as like a cold thing, then it kind of went away, and then it turned into like a flu thing almost, where I was really achy and gross feeling, and then also had a sore throat and a cough. It's like I have some of the coronavirus like symptoms, but I'd never had a fever, so I don't know that I actually had it, but who knows? Maybe I did. I mean, you can still hear it in my voice. I just feel off, and I'm not getting much well I wasn't getting much better and then when I switched over within a day or two I all I started feeling a lot better now I could have been also eating something that wasn't agreeing with me maybe and helping contribute to me feeling so crappy I don't know because I was eating a lot of like breads and stuff that I don't normally eat and I do in the past I've been pretty sensitive to eating gluten Uh, I don't I don't officially say I have a gluten allergy but I definitely feel it sometimes when I eat it I get headaches break out and acne and stuff but I didn't have any of those direct symptoms. I was also sick. So it was really hard to like tear it apart and say like, no, this diet caused me to feel X, Y, or Z way because I was so sick going into it. So I may at some point in the future, give it one more shake when I'm totally healthy. And just that way I can really verify the effects of that diet. But I felt pretty good, generally speaking, um, with minus the cold part of it. It sounds like that'd be something you want to try. Like you said, when you're at a hundred percent so you can get the the true effect and see how it really how it really treated your body at the end of the week yeah like when i kicked off the diet i felt like i was coming out of the cold but then it like went back nosedive down deep into a nastier cold and i had started exercising again after i took a little hiatus for a minute because i had messed up my um, trap and it was okay for a while but then it just got to the point where i've stopped working out I'm taking a total break all the way through till next Monday and I'm off that diet and back onto my traditional diet and starting to come out of this sickness, but there's still parts of it that are lingering. Well, hopefully by next Monday, you're back to a hundred percent. And I made a comment during the last edit that I did that I think I didn't know if it was the new mic you had bought or it was the sickness, but I was like, Wow, you really got the the bassy tone going on. I was listening to the the playback of our last episode after you edited it, and I'm like, man, you're gonna put me to sleep with that with that smooth bass tone in your voice. I got that Barry White voice. Hello, ladies. <laughs> Hello, Val Venus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Val v- <laughs> I don't know how many of our listeners would know that one. <laughs> I'm sure there's a few. <laughs> yeah. Val Venus, the he was a uh, professional wrestler in the '90s who was like a fake porn star. Was like his gimmick. <laughs> I think he was a late the late '90s version of Rick Rude. That's right. Did you see the uh, the wrestling is still going on in an empty arena? I did, and I heard that that was very very strange with no fans in the crowd. I wanted to watch 
we said that the vegan diet was our last subject, but um, in case you didn't catch it, Monday night was 316 and they had Stone Cold Steve Austin on there. And I want to try to watch a replay of that to see what happened. But yeah, I heard there was no crowd in attendance, which is really weird. I heard that Stone Cold came out. He hit the turnbuckles like he usually does, you know, where he raises his arms in each corner of the ring to the crowd, but nobody's there. So there's no cheer, which usually there's a huge loud cheer for him. And then he asked the crowd to give him a hell yeah at one point when he was on the microphone. It was just a habit probably. I don't know. I didn't see it yet, but yeah, I I just thought that was really strange. I saw another one where during, I think, a taping of SmackDown, they were performing and then they went to commercial break and the wrestlers just stopped wrestling because there's nobody to wrestle for. <laughs> it's like, so what are we doing? Yeah, just hanging out, shooting the shit and then get back into character for the camera. That's just totally strange. Yeah, right. Being that the only one of the biggest forms of entertainment right now is for people to stream stuff or watch it on TV. I mean, I can see where they're coming from. They still want to provide something for you to watch at home, but it's not the same experience. Who who Who's going to want to watch a football game in a dead silent stadium with no fan noise to interrupt the play calling or just provide interference in general? Who wants to watch wrestling when there's not a bunch of people yelling at the performers? Right. No kidding. All right, well, that's going to be a wrap for this week. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for staying with us. Stay strong during this. We'll be trying to pump out as much content as we can to keep you entertained while you're hunkered down in your home and have nothing else to do. In the meantime, if you wouldn't mind, pass us along to your friends. All right, stay safe, everyone.